I love working with these guys and I know that, you know, they're not going to ever be my employee. And so I would give that up and I, I don't know if I want to do that or not. There's so many great people in the craft community to collaborate with and sort of bounce ideas off of and do projects together with. I feel like maybe that would wall me off to that world a little bit. This is Commerce Minded, where we go behind the scenes to talk with the people who make e-commerce tick. Brought to you by Foster Commerce. I'm your host, Stephen Callender. When people ask for a list of sites that have been built with craft commerce, the Barefoot Contessa site is always on that list. So it seemed fitting to chat with a man who built it early on in our show. Jonathan Melville joined me and he shared some personal hardships he's experienced and talked through what impact it's had on his business mindset and future goals. And of course, we dive into some shop talk, bounce off ideas on how to handle the dreaded custom shipping rules that merchants can come up with. I think that you're going to enjoy Jonathan as much as I did. So you have two kids, right? I do, yeah. I have a five-year-old and a he's now an eight-month-old as of yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are y'all, do y'all do the monthly pictures? We do, actually. Yeah. So my wife went and bought the uh, little stickers. And so, yeah, we, we get one every month. Very good. So uh, that's actually, we need to be doing that today. Yesterday was our kid's uh, two-month birthday. Our- oh, that's great. So it's truly a newborn Definitely. So I had her in my arms today for a good four hours. Oh, well. Yeah, I I feel for you there. We don't do really good in the newborn phase. We're just like, neither one of us do really good with no sleep. And so it's always kind of just like survival mode for us when they're first born. But yeah. And you had challenges with this recent kid, right? We did. Yeah. So he was born in December of last year. And um, he had a congenital liver disease called biliary atresia, which is extremely rare. It's like one in 20,000 births. And there's no way to know like before they're born. So we, it was kind of a shock to us or whatever. But basically, it's like it always ends in a liver transplant. So, And before that, we were living in the hospital. We were living at Children's Healthcare Atlanta because he was too sick to leave. And so we were considering what our options are going to be. And so we could either do like the, where he's listed, you know, on the national organ sharing thing and we wait for one, but we decided to do a living donor. And so even though he was listed, we decided to go ahead and do a living donor. So my wife uh, gave him about 40% of her liver and He's doing great now. I mean, it was like flipping a light switch. Like he went from almost dying to being like a healthy, you know, you would never know that he had been through what he went through unless you saw the scar on his tummy. So it's pretty amazing. Wow. I can't imagine being in the hospital at that age, especially it's like when I even think about the bond like my wife has with our children and, you know, especially in our most recent one and imagine being in the hospital that might be pretty tough. So it is a little tough. And also like, you know, it's hard enough having a newborn, but trying to figure out, you know, is he upset because 
he's hungry or is he upset because of some problem with his disease? It just kind of adds a whole nother element to like the newborn thing. It's already hard enough. And so having a newborn with a disease like that is just like extremely stressful. Uh, A lot of parents, depending on how the disease goes, can get by, you know, maybe two or three years um, before they have to do the transplant with this. But we, he, he was just super sick. He had like the most aggressive form of it. In many ways, the transplant, like we were, that was a happy day for us because it sort of allowed us to have a healthy baby. And we hadn't had that um, from the time that he was born. It's pretty amazing that they can even do things like that these days. Isn't it? I know moms would, would do anything for their kids. And the fact that your wife gave part of her liver to, was it her liver, right? Or Yeah, part of her liver. So that's the only organ you can really do that because the liver grows back. It's like if you cut a piece of it off, it like regenerates. It's the only one that does that. You can't do it with like a kidney or something. She had to go through all this testing to see if she was able to to do that to like be a match for him. I couldn't do it because I'm not his blood type. And so that's like the minimum requirement, I guess. And so, and there's more to it than that. Like you have to make the same kind of enzymes or something like that. So yeah, she was like a perfect match for him. And so... That's what we did. So we had a day where we had two family members having major surgery at the exact same time. And uh, everybody everybody came through great, though. Yeah. How's your daughter doing with all that? You know what? For the first couple of months, it didn't really, she didn't understand the gravity of it. And then I think it hit her a couple of weeks after he had his transplant. That he wouldn't have lived without it. And I, I remember when she, that moment when she realized it. It was, you know, something to see a five-year-old sort of grapple with that. But she's done really well. Like, she's adjusted really well. She loves her brother. Yeah, she's just done great. Like, she's just started kindergarten uh, last week. Wow. Yeah, now now you get uh, the exciting times ahead both of them. That's awesome, man. So I'm glad for that and glad for for your family. That's incredible. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And congrats to you. Appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. We're, it's the juggling though, man, that juggling of especially, and it sounds like your work is, or at least the way you approach your work is similar to how I approach even my lifestyle. And maybe a lot of people who, who might listen or work in craft and kind of do a lot of development by themselves where work from home or able to just be a little bit more flexible and kind of be around. So did you imagine that time you had to take a lot of time off to be around? Did that kind of impact you? How did you handle the business side of things for that? I think that that's one of those things that you never really consider, you know, what am I going to do as sort of sole proprietor of my business? What am I going to do if something ever happens and I'm, I'm just not able to work? Like, what's that going to look like? And it's very hard to plan, you know, for a situation like that. And I didn't, I was just one of those people that said, yeah, nothing's ever going to happen. I got this. Well, I basically couldn't work for months that creates a lot of problems. (laughs) You know, you're not getting your regular billings out the door like you should. And also the work just sort of piles up. You know, you have clients that are absolutely sympathetic, but by the same token, you know, they need the work done. And so it is very stressful. The thing that got me by probably was I've sort of built up these kind of retainer or maintenance agreements over the years. And this is just kind of regular income to sort of be there to support people with kind of everyday issues that they may run into. They can like open it, a help desk ticket and then we'll deal with it, that kind of thing. Having that sort of regular stream of income did get me by for a couple months. And luckily I have the best clients. So everybody was totally understanding. So some of the bigger projects um, that we were in the middle of when this happened, we just kind of kicked the can down the road a couple of weeks until I was able to get back in the office and get everything 
rolling again. And so that's kind of how we, how we got past it. But yeah, that's, that's something I would say to anybody who's listening, who is sort of, you're like the only person and maybe you work with some subcontractors sometimes, but for the most part, your business is just you definitely consider like, what would I do if I got hit by a car or I had a a child that was sick or or any other reason where you had to step away for a little while, you know, what would that look like? What would be a, a good plan for dealing with that? Yeah. So how specifically are you doing that? So if you're planning now that you've been through this and and if you're planning for possible future things, you know, what's, what's that look like for you? Are you putting things in place? I am actually. So I, I had always been very reluctant to use subcontractors for a lot of stuff. I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to own the project from start to finish. It can sometimes be a hassle to deal with subcontractors it sometimes doesn't go well. And so I had always sort of shied away from that. I've been much more open to that now. I have a couple of people that I just know are solid developers and I sort of work with them frequently on a lot of different projects. And so just kind of being willing to know what I can take on myself and what I need to bring someone else in to help with um, has been really great because I was doing a lot of stuff like down in the weeds that I really didn't have time to be doing and someone else could have easily done that. And so just sort of being willing to rely more on on some good trusted uh, developers uh, to step in and help with some of the stuff has been a really big help. I've worked with a lot of contractors and my experience of that is, I mean, one, when you find the right one, like, goodness, like my mentality is try to keep them. You oh know? my gosh, me too. Absolutely. <laughs> that process of then finding the one, because I imagine a lot of people might think through that and be like, yeah, but the, the whole struggle of trying to find the one, but then also managing them of how to know, like to move from being a producer or somebody who's still producing code and, and developing and do all that stuff to then managing somebody who's producing and kind of those skill sets are very different. Absolutely. And I think a lot of issues come into play because as developers, we all kind of have different ways that we like to do things, right? Even like a build tool, maybe. So it's like, oh, well, like I always use Webpack and this is exactly what my config always looks like. And I always use Tailwind uh, for the front end and blah, 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 blah. Well, you get somebody else who comes on, they're not comfortable with that. They use Gulp and they use foundation for their front end. That's what they're comfortable with or whatever. So it's kind of like merging uh, different philosophies together in a way where you you can both uh, work together and be productive can be a challenge too. I guess just for me, because I'm just so, I feel like I'm super anal about those kind of things. And I have trouble seeding to someone else. Like if somebody else has a particular way that they like a project to be structured or a tool that they like to use, I tend to say, I just do it my way instead of sort of listening to their point of view on it. And sometimes that can just slow them down unnecessarily. So are you allowing your subcontractors to do that, to like do their own process or are you giving them other types of tasks? I have started to let go a little bit. Yeah. I'm working with a guy right now. He's a super smart guy on a project for Atlanta Ballet, which is one of my clients. And so it's like a site for they have a center where they do like continuing education for people who want to learn dance and stuff like that. And so this is a project that had been on the queue for a while. It was one of those projects that I had to sort of set aside when my son was born and had all of his health issues. And I knew I needed to bring in a sub to do it. And so I started talking to this guy and I started just kind of 
telling him how I wanted everything to be. I need you to use this tool, blah, 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 blah. He wasn't comfortable with any of it. And I could tell that it was sort of slowing the project down and it was totally unnecessary. Like he doesn't have to do the things the way that I do them. And so I finally realized that and sort of made my peace with it. And it's fine. Like it's fine. That's just an example of some of the things that I'm sort of learning along the way as I rely on subs more. Yeah. So you found somebody who could think through and do it their way, but it's kind of learning to let go and, and let them do it their way. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some things that I want that I won't give in on. So like, I don't care what build tool you use, but like, I don't want you using bootstrap, <laughs> that kind of thing. So like when you're setting up for your future, okay, so you've got subcontractors uh, that you're working with and you're trying to give them some tasks. And so if something comes along, then you could kind of play the project management role a bit do you let them talk to clients or do you still manage that i think it depends on who the subcontractor is so like i have some subcontractors that i work with who absolutely talk to clients and they actually i've had some come with me like on trips to meet with clients and sort of do on sites and that kind of stuff because they're really good with clients and it's a positive thing to have them involved at that level some subcontractors I've worked with, I would never let them talk to a client. And I sort of just like them to be the sort of behind the scenes, you know, sort of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, making things happen. I have a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses. I would say one of my strengths is uh, dealing with clients. So I feel like I'm pretty good at that. And I'm able to recognize when someone is not good at dealing with clients. And so that's kind of one of the things I evaluate if I'm working with a new subcontractor is... Is this the kind of person that needs to be the behind the scenes person or is this somebody that can sort of be present on calls and that kind of stuff? So I would say I just kind of take it, you know, person by person. We all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. Yeah. So are you, are you looking to build out like a, a team of, I mean, whether they're salaried, but basically full-time employees? You know what? That's kind of the dream. Is it? It's funny you brought that up. I mean, I've been kicking it around with my wife now for a couple of months. Um, in many ways, I enjoy still being the guy that's, you know, actively writing all of the code and all the, all of this kind of stuff and being involved in these projects at a very low level. I like that. Um, it's what I've always done. But in other ways, I don't see myself really being able to do that forever. Dealing with clients is very hard. I'm taking on more and more projects, which means I'm being spread more and more thin. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what would that look like to sort of hire employees and maybe take a more high level role in things. So I, I went to school for design. All right. And so design is um, a huge passion of mine. I love being involved at that level, at the conceptual level. I love pitching things to clients. I love all aspects of the design process. I like the development process too, but design is a huge passion of mine. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about, you know, what's that going to look like in the future? I can't see myself doing this sort of low-level stuff 10 years from now. I would love to be able to build out the company where I could take a more high-level role and then sort of delegate to employees. But, yeah, there's sort of pros and cons to both, I guess. I guess the reason I haven't done it up until this point is because having employees is sort of alleviates a lot of issues that you may have as a small business owner, but it also adds a bunch to, I just haven't been in a place where I've wanted to go there yet, but it's something that I've been actively thinking about. So with the first seats you'd fill as like a junior developer or, or one of your contractors that you had offered them something full-time? 
Yeah, so one of the guys that I work with most frequently, um, I'll just go ahead and say it's Andrew. Anybody knows Andrew Welch um, in the craft community? This guy's just brilliant. He's one of the smartest developers I've ever met. Andrew's got a lot going for him. So Andrew would would not be uh, probably somebody I'd be able to poach for myself. Maybe that's another thing too about going the route of employees. And maybe that's another reason that I haven't done it is because the subs that I work with, like Andrew and some other people, I love working with these guys. I love working with these guys. And I know that you know they're not going to ever be my employee. And so I would give that up. And I, I don't know if I want to do that or not. There's so many great people in the craft community to collaborate with and sort of bounce ideas off of and do projects together with. I feel like maybe that would wall me off to that world a little bit. It's an interesting tension. You know, the tension is toward the goal of a stable business, right? How necessary is it to have a stability of a team around you? And if they're always contractors, does that undermine that stability of then kind of what you're building? And that's because that's a question that I have as well. Even just revealing a bit, like for us, I'm the only one who's salaried officially, but our lead developer, who's also gonna be on this podcast at different times, Michael um, Van Dorth, he's in Spain and he's basically on a kind of retainer um, monthly thing. And we've been together for over three years, you know, and he's essentially salaried still in practice a bit. And he's like on our team, he's a lead developer. Like he's a core member of the team and I couldn't do it without him. So we had a designer too, and she was phenomenal. Um, unfortunately, we, we kind of had to let her go just because our focus has been development. And I just had to make it a business decision that, you know, it wasn't, we're losing money on paying her. But as for us, as we've gone through, so I have other contractors and, and people we use for other things. And we're getting to a place where I have to make a decision. Are we going to pursue the growth that we're kind of experiencing or am I going to stay small or I have to say lean, you know, and just say no more often and just kind of keep the team where we are and just, we both love our lifestyles. And so how stable is that if something were to happen? I think the lifestyle thing is a really good point too. I mean, that's definitely something you have to ask yourself. And this is yet another conversation I've been having in my life is, what am I trying to do here? Is the goal to grow this business and just you know become as big as we can possibly be? Or is the goal to use the business to get the kind of lifestyle that I want? A little more flexibility, a little more time with the kids. Like, and so I feel like those two may be at odds with each other a little bit. Um, not always. I guess maybe some people are they're better at that work-life balance thing. But I feel like if I pursued the direction of I'm going to try to grow the company and see how big I can get the company, then that's going to reduce the amount of time that I have with my family. I mean, towards your goal of then being able to kind of stabilize and grow or to like have more freedom, you either start charging a lot more per hour, which then there's a point where you can't cross, even if you're worth it, just because of mentality. And, and there's a sense of hourly rates, always commodity, you know, so you have to start getting into to use that language of a productized service where it's a packaged service that you it has value, but it has higher margins. So maybe that is your direction. That and I mean, a direction that I pursued, and I know this is going to sound really ridiculous, I guess, pursue better clients. So like when I um, started doing this uh, way back when, I was so much busier probably because I was having to take on way more projects to make the kind of money that I needed to make. And so these were like smaller projects, smaller budgets. And so you have to do more of them, of course, simple math in order to make that kind of money. I started trying to pursue the larger clients with larger budgets and fewer of those. And I like that strategy a lot better. I like having a large project that takes months 
one of those versus having three or four little tiny projects going simultaneously. I don't do well when I'm stretched super thin, but I feel like I, I can do well if all of my focus can be put on one very large project. So speaking of big projects, one of the ones that you're most known for and has been whenever people talk about craft commerce, um, partly because of the celebrity of it, barefootcontessa.com gets brought up. I know that in talks that I've had with Leslie Camacho over at uh, Pixel and Tonic of Craft, when we've been on client calls together talking about commerce, trying to sell commerce to people, um, that site comes up. And so I know you have a case study. There's a case study that they wrote up on the Craft CMS website kind of on there as well. So how long ago did you work on that site? And was that your first venture into commerce or have you had other experience before that? Yeah, so I worked on that site Gosh, it's hard to believe. Maybe almost two years ago, I guess, at this point. And it wasn't technically my first. Um, I had done a very small commerce project for another client uh, before that. And actually, that project was a lot smaller than I would normally do. But I felt like I knew that Barefoot Contessa was coming at that point. I knew that it was coming. And we had already decided that Craft was going to be the CMS for it. And we knew that we had to have the commerce functionality. So it was kind of a no-brainer. Even though I hadn't used commerce, it was a no-brainer. Hey, this is the tool uh, for the job. And so I did this other smaller project in the months before the development ramped up on Barefoot Contessa just to sort of get my feet wet. I didn't want to go into Barefoot Contessa um, without having done anything in commerce. That's not the project that I wanted to be figuring everything out on. And so I did this other project. It's, it's sort of like a, a small, like organic food company. It was a side venture for, for a larger client that I do regular work for. And so I did that project and sort of allowed me to have a little bit of a uh, playground to experiment with. And after that project wrapped is when on development on Barefoot Contessa ramped up. So Barefoot Contessa was technically my second one, but definitely the largest one. Tell me about the kind of even the backstory of then how you got brought into that project. And I guess I'm really interested in if you have a favorite recipe from you know, the side. Did you try anything? Did your, was your wife excited about it? Yeah. So my wife is a huge foodie. She loves food. She loves cooking. She loves eye in a garden. And so this was, we were a little starstruck on this one. It was great. She has a great brand. She has a very loyal following and she has a, still a very popular show to this day on the Food Network. It was a lot of fun. This project was a result of, I collaborate frequently with an agency in New York City called Apartment One. And they are super talented uh, designers there. And so uh, this was a collaboration with Apartment One. They work with Barefoot Contessa, like with that site, it's their site, they design it, and then they brought you in to develop it. That's correct. Yeah. And we, we contributed some designs too also, but the primary on that, on the design work was uh, Apartment One. So were there any unique things or was it a pretty straightforward site? Was there anything when you, when you were working in it that you're pretty excited to kind of do that was fun? Any fancy footwork in there or... I would say maybe something that's interesting is we did an integration with ShipStation. That was a huge pain point for them, was shipping and fulfillment. So is that site using, because I know that the, at least the commercial available ShipStation plugin for Commerce One is built by one agency out of Chicago. Is that the one you're using or did you build that yourself? Yeah, that's kind of a funny story. So I started working on a 
plugin to integrate with ShipStation. And I worked on it for a while when I got a message on Slack from Andrew. And he was like, hey, man, don't you know there's already one that exists? And I was like, oh, man. So I stopped what I was doing and installed uh, One's version that they put out. And it didn't quite work right. So like there was some issues with it. Um, I can't remember exactly what they were now. I don't know if this is still true. I haven't taken a look at it in a really long time. But at the time, they didn't have like a GitHub for it or anything. You had to go to their website and download it. So like there was really no way to like open an issue if you ran into trouble or anything with it. They were giving it away for free. So I didn't feel like I could just like blow them up with emails. Hey, I ran into this problem. So we are using One's version of it, but it's kind of a hacked version where we went in and kind of fixed uh, some of the problems that we ran into. And also we had to hack it a little bit also because we were using some functionality that just wasn't available out of the box, like passing like custom fields over to ShipStation. Like an example would be when you're checking out, you have the option of supplying a gift message. Like if you're buying a cookbook or whatever for someone and sending it to them as a gift, you can put in a message in there and then they'll print that out and include it in the order when they ship it. And so we have to pass that off to ShipStation so it'll be there. So that kind of stuff. Um, But I would say 95% of it is one's uh, version that they made available. And then we had to sort of go in and hack at it a little bit to make it suitable for what we were trying to do. Do you have any other commerce clients since then? Yeah, so I have um, a couple of smaller clients. So Verificantest is the biggest. And then I have some clients where I know that they're doing this with commerce too, right? Where it's like commerce light, I guess. But at the time, that wasn't a thing. And so I have some other clients that are not using commerce really, but it's like a plugin that facilitates like a Stripe, a simple Stripe transaction or something like that. A charge? Yeah, charge is one of them. And then I think there's more now, but... I guess the biggest one of those that I use, that kind of implementation is a client that they allow you to book trail rides like horseback riding, like out in the woods. And so they needed a reservation booking system. So like you can go on and view available time slots and you can book that reservation online and pay your deposit and all this kind of stuff. And so I ended up writing a custom craft plugin that does the reservation stuff. And then I just use Stripe for, uh, for the checkout. So, and that's on Commerce One? Uh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. That, I'm sorry. That's Charge. That's an example of one of the ones where our Commerce, I felt like was overkill for it. Because really all I needed was a, a way to do like a one-off. Nobody's adding anything to their card or that kind of stuff. And so all you need is the ability to sort of charge their card. With all the the commerce sites you've done, is there some similarities that you've seen? So somebody, let me give you even context. So like one of the things that I notice happens is because we've consulted a lot with people who've done commerce sites because it's say it's an agency. It's their first time doing a commerce build. They just had a client and sometimes agencies, they are selected either because of their design chops and then they take on a project maybe they're not fully ready for. Whatever the case, they need, they need commerce assistance or something that happens we've noticed that sometimes there's some trends and some themes, right? Of some things that are happening. You already mentioned one of them is kind of like shipping. There's always something around shipping that if it's especially a a medium order kind of volume, that there's something that goes on there. But in your experience, is there anything that that you've noticed is a a trend that e-commerce businesses or these e-commerce sites use that either seems common to you or even surprising like so if other people are thinking about like commerce builds like oh expect this in many ways shipping is the biggest one 
and we always run into that. And it, it sort of depends on what direction the client wants to take it. I mean, I think the trend in the bigger e-commerce world is some kind of flat rate model for shipping. Amazon is really responsible for this. So you buy $10 worth of stuff or you buy $1,000 worth of stuff. It's the same shipping costs. That's easier to implement and customers like that better. You know, I've worked with clients before who wanted to go the route of like live shipping quotes. This is such a pain to implement. It is such a pain to implement. And it's not even the best experience uh, for people buying stuff in your store. And so I always try to push clients away from that. I feel like that clients feel like that they're going to, it's going to save them so much money to have these live shipping rate quotes or whatever. But tweaking that system and tuning it and getting it just right, like I really feel like you, you end up spending so much more money than if you went with some kind of flat rate strategy or even like price-based strategy. So like if you spend $100, it's this. If you spend up between $200 and $500, the flat rate is this or whatever. I tend to think that that's a better strategy. I would love to hear how you, how you even handle that uh, with your clients because the shipping is by far the biggest issue that we've always run into. Yeah, shipping is always the piece where it reveals a lot about the client, first of all, like and how they're thinking and and really how they think about their business too. So um, we always come with a perspective. So we, we definitely try to have a voice in it. So we're not just kind of whatever you want, you know, we'll do it. We'll try to encourage people because we, we feel like we have the experience and the, and the wisdom of there to kind of see and we know what the trends are and what's happening around. So I guess where I start off with is sites that have... It's not always about free shipping. Free shipping is, it definitely matters. But the bigger issue is not having a surprise, you know? So there's not some surprise in shipping. That's the second reason why people abandon their cart is is the shipping costs. Is, is there's something that they didn't expect um, and it changes the price of everything. So, and that's why people will not follow through. So it's like somebody in your store, all of a sudden you get to the checkout register and not only is there tax, but there's something, you know, it's like, we're going to charge you for this when this happens in California and different places if you want a bag, but like, we're going to charge you for this bag. And they say that price is sufficient enough where it's like, oh, well, forget this. I'm out. You know, that happens all the time. So we definitely try to encourage people to have free shipping and have that shipping price included in their products. That margin is covered in there and whatever calculations they need to do on their business side to figure that out. We're happy to help people figure that out um, and do that math with them. But it's okay to have three rates as well. That's one of the things, like no more than three rates. People are doing all these complex shipping rules. They do it. And we're working on a site right now where honestly, there were going to be 242 rules. And we talked them down to, (laughs) I think we got it down to like 30 something. So there are 30 something rules. What we encourage people is one, so offer free shipping for sure. Put that in your price and be okay with that. And then people also want expedited shipping. So, like, but do no more than three rules or three options. I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah, because then it gets more confusion. It's the same thing of going to the Cheesecake Factory and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to eat because everything is here. The menu is just too broad and it's just confusing. And in a checkout process, that's just gonna you're gonna lose people. Not to mention that the formulas for even how to calculate a live rate. It is just ridiculous. I mean, so like the DIM-based formula now, so this is like, it's not just the weight, it's the dimensional weight. 
a lot of the major carriers have gone to that to calculate their shipping. It's just unduly complicated, I think. It's super complicated for the customer. They don't even understand why they're being charged this. And like you said, it leads to a lot of people abandoning their order because they don't want to pay what's come back. And uh, just the development time, the extra development time required to implement some of this stuff, you're you're not saving any money. No. How many purchases would it take to then pay back what you've just invested in developer time to make this logic work for you? Absolutely. 100% agree. And that's what we try to encourage people to one, offer free shipping for sure, and then have expedited rates. I totally understand having, if you're doing multiple inter- like international shipping, but for those users, you set it up in a way where like if somebody's in Canada, they only see the Canada shipping options. So it's not confusing. you know. So that's something to be smart about in that way. But yeah, the live shipping, I've never seen a benefit of that. And part of it is just then training people of, if you're in the e-commerce world, your margins are already small. It is a ruthless world, (laughs) e-commerce. So like, if you're not paying attention to your math, like if you're not paying attention to what your margins are, what your profit is, and and what all that is, you're going to struggle. Unless e-commerce is just some side project for you or like wholesale or something else is your primary business and e-commerce is just something, well, I just kind of put it out there to gain attention and it's not where you're trying to make money. Then those people typically have a different approach and they're not as aware. But for people who really need to make a living off of their e-commerce, their business needs to really survive on that. Like knowing your profit, knowing your margins, seeing how you're shipping in there and knowing that people on the internet don't have the patience for curveballs. Right. And the easiest way to not throw them a curveball, to give them that soft pitch that they can easily hit is free shipping. Yeah. (laughs) Free shipping or even predictable price base. So like I understand not wanting to go all in on free, but at least make it something like if the order is between zero and $50, shipping is $5. If it's between 100 and whatever, it's this. Like I I think that even that's a, a decent model too. I'd push back on that actually in experience. So like, cause what happens is what you're competing with is you can always get almost anything if it's not brand specific on Amazon, right? Well, yeah. And people don't really have brand loyalty on the internet. I mean, I've heard the comments say like brand loyalty is lasts as long as a Google search, you know? So if people can get elsewhere in other places, what happens is the larger your order is, the larger your, whatever your purchasing is, the cheaper your shipping becomes. It's like, we'll give you free shipping if you've spent a hundred dollars with us. So I would even say it's somewhat the opposite. If there's smaller things, then maybe add some shipping because then it's like, ah, it's not that bad. Okay, $7 and now I'm going to pay 11 fine, you know? Oh, well, that's actually, that's a really good point, actually. I've never considered that. Yeah, so there is that challenge, but it's all market too and figure out who your market is and are you really competing with Amazons of the world or are you competing with Gucci, you know, like where your market is and what your customers expect and, and what their experiences will be with your competitors is really kind of important in that so barefoot contessa is kind of interesting in that regard because you can get her books on amazon and barnes and noble or whatever but that site is the only place to get an autographed copy of one and so that's kind of what drives the sales there barefoot contessa is people who are the big fans they're going to want the autographed copy and so they're they can't get it anywhere else thanks for chatting it's been good awesome thanks for the conversation appreciate it 
I really like this guy. I want to drive down to Atlanta, eat some smoked ribs, drink some beers, and just have just endless conversations with Jonathan. I know we'll see more from him in the commerce world because a little birdie tells me that he and our next guest are cooking up a solid e-commerce site for a great company. So that's your cue to check back in in two weeks. And on that show will be the man who I believe has impacted just about every single craft build since at least 2017, maybe before. He sets new trends and best practice standards. He is Andrew Welch. And before you go, give us a little love on iTunes. A rating and review really does help us spread the word about craft commerce to other like-minded professionals and merchants. And so that's it for today. I'm Stephen Callender. This is Commerce Minded, brought to you by Foster Commerce.